This past year, we've had several conversations as a leadership team about the idea of being a waiting church, about what does it look like for us as a church to understand and embrace what it means to wait. So at one of those meetings, I asked our C team and our elders this question, waiting is blank. Waiting is fill in the blank. So what do you think? How would you fill in that blank? Difficult. Difficult. What else? Boring. Boring. Painful. Painful. Is that painful in stereo? (laughs) From two different people? Painful. What else? Anxious. Doubt-filled. What was that last one? Exciting. Sanctifying. Sanctifying. Takes too long. Yeah. Takes too long. Necessary. Necessary. Yeah, so you're all over the room, all over the board. Here, here are some of the responses that uh, the leaders in our church shared. Waiting is hard, obnoxious, freeing, lonely, lazy, fiddling, countercultural, Pointless, mature, restful, unnatural, unproductive, upstream, faithful, active, hopeful, humbling, trusting, transformative, painful. What a mashup of responses. What a collection of replies. Experts have said that we live in a hurry sick culture. We're constantly on the go, constantly on to the next thing, waiting anxiously for things just to speed up. Last week, we opened up our Advent series this month in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, Minor Prophet, one of these small little books in your Old Testament. And we introduced the series around this question What happens when God doesn't do what you want him to do? Or asked a different way, what happens when God does God kind of things in God kind of ways on God's kind of schedule and you frankly don't like it at all? Because that was the issue for the prophet Habakkuk. That's what he was experiencing. And for the next few weeks, we're gonna continue to work our way through that question and through that theme. Because as we've named even already today, especially during the Advent season, our pain and our problems do not magically disappear. Most of us are probably waiting on something. So last week we talked about how Habakkuk engaged God, asked questions of God, wrestled with God. We named the need for honor and honesty. And sometimes we don't do both of those well. We want one or the other. But honor and honesty, making requests of him, but also having reverence. This week we're going to keep moving and watching Habakkuk as he engages God. I'm going to talk about waiting for God well. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible about waiting comes from a different prophet, the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read a little bit of Isaiah 40 before we get into Habakkuk 2 today. 
Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Some other versions or translations, the New Living Version puts that verse, O Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say that God ignores your rights? Or the message version, why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine Israel, saying God has lost track of me? He doesn't care what happens to me. Obviously, these themes keep coming up in the Bible. Like You're not the only one who has said this before. So how does that go on from there? Verse 28 says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here in this passage, in this passage, it's implied that waiting is not a curse, but that actually waiting is a gift. And there's a way in which you can wait where you actually find strength. There's a way that you can wait where you don't end up beat down, worn out, and whining. But there's a way in which God would meet you in that place and you would actually find more strength in your waiting. Being renewed. So that's the million dollar question. Like, how do I tap into that? (laughs) Because often I find myself the opposite. Weary, discouraged, frustrated, bitter, complaining, a little whiny. How do we wait differently? So to that end, let's go ahead and look at Habakkuk. It's this book that no one ever reads. I think it's just really rich. Habakkuk chapter 2. So I'm going to just a brief catch everyone up to speed if you weren't here last week. The book of Habakkuk opens in chapter 1 with Habakkuk saying, How long, O Lord? He looks around at life. Again, this is, he's in Judah, 7th century B.C. His first question for God, he looks around, he sees violence, he sees injustice, he sees corruption, he sees, in his mind, the wrong people getting ahead and those that should get, catch a break always being pushed under. And so he's crying out to God saying, God, how long? How long are you going to put up with all this? Do you even hear me? Am I wasting my breath? Do you have ears to hear? How long do I cry out? That's his first question. And then the second question comes right after that because God actually answers his prayer. God replies. He says, actually, yes, I've seen. I know. Oh, I'm well aware of what's happening. And I actually have a plan to deal with it. And here's my plan. 
Habakkuk. My plan is I'm going to raise up a bitter pagan nation, the Chaldeans. We know them as the Babylonians. And they're going to come in and they're going to bring judgment. And Habakkuk says, what? Why that? I don't like that idea either. So first he's stuck on the fact that God won't do anything about the problem. And then when God says, I'm going to do something, Habakkuk's like, I hate the way you think. I don't like your plan. How can you do that? They, are, they need judgment. They're worse than we are. How can you use them as an instrument of righteousness? Makes no sense at all. So, this is the back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk is waiting for God to reply to his complaint. So in the midst of the waiting, how do we wait well? I want to offer to you four movements in our waiting, and they're not robotic step-by-step because we often bounce through a variety of things in our waiting, but I want to offer you four things from these four verses that I think are helpful for us to wait well. Here they are, all four, and then we'll talk through them. Take the tower, read and write, practice patience, live by faith. Let's go through those. Take the tower. Take the tower. Right from the beginning of Habakkuk 2, here's what Habakkuk the prophet says. He says, I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. I'm going to station myself on the tower. Now, practically speaking, Habakkuk is not a watchman by trade. That's not his profession. It's not his job. He actually probably didn't have a literal tower to take in mind. But metaphorically speaking, here's what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is turning passivity into proactivity. He's taking passivity and turning it into proactivity, and he is taking some steps to make his waiting active. I think this is important just to note when it comes to seasons of waiting. Oftentimes people have a notion that waiting means doing nothing. Like, I'm just going to sit here, and what you doing? Waiting. I'm going to sit here and just wait. I'm not going to do nothing. It's really important to realize, like, biblically speaking, waiting on God does not mean doing nothing with God. Sometimes we've begun to believe that to wait means I'm just going to resign myself, sit on my sofa, put God and that stuff over there and just, huh, wait. No, that's not what waiting is. It's not, I'm just going to sit here and scroll on Facebook or Instagram until God comes around. Habakkuk says, I'm going to take the tower. Again, it helps to understand the picture of the ancient world. Many cities in the ancient world were walled cities for defense and protection. And oftentimes in the corners or the intersections of the wall, they had these towers. Why would a person in an ancient city take a tower? Why would the watchman take the tower? Yeah, to be able to see. 
The, the, the watchman takes the tower to gain a different perspective. From the tower, they can see the enemy. They can see what's going on. They have a better viewpoint. They have a better vantage point. They have a better perspective on what's actually happening. From the tower, a person can understand better what's going on. Again, the enemy spotted, reinforcements being seen, the battle as a whole being observed. From the tower, everything looks a little bit different. So in this conversation with the Lord, Habakkuk is not just plopping down in resignation, folding his hands and saying, all right, I'm going to wait on God. No, he says, I'm going to take the tower and see what God says. There's a sense of active engagement. I want to see. Maybe I don't see as I ought to see. I'm going to see differently. I want to have my eyes on the ground. There's an expectation that something may happen that God may actually have something to say or that he may be doing something that he cannot understand. Each and every day, he's gonna take his stand, take another look, and eagerly await a reply. Not passive resignation. It's a willingness to say, maybe I need a new perspective on this. Maybe I'm not seeing this right. Maybe I need some fresh eyes. Maybe I need some fresh ears. And I just wanna point out, sometimes in my waiting, I abandon my post. And if anything, this this may look like some different activity, but it may be most of all a posture of heart. That I would actively engage God in my waiting. There's waiting and there's giving up, and those are two different things. So take the tower. Take the tower. Secondly, read and write. Verse 2, Habakkuk 2.2, as Habakkuk has taken the tower, set his watch, he's listened for God to speak, and then God responds again. Verse 2 says, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So in the moment, God gives him some very clear directions and a clear command. And God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to give you the vision and I want you to write it down. Again, in in context, Habakkuk has been going back and forth with God. God, how long? God answers. Why that? And he's waiting for God to reply back in their conversation. And God says, I want, I'm going to give something to you here. I want you to write it down. Why does Habakkuk need to write this down? The first reason is because God says, this is not going to happen immediately. I may have an answer for you here, but, but it, may be, it may seem slow in coming. So write it down. The vision awaits its appointed time, verse 3. It may seem slow. It's not going to happen right away. You need this preserved for a future time when you're going to need to know this information. Which leads to reason number two. He also says that other people are going to read it. In fact, God says other people are going to run to read it. It's going to be good news for them to hear it. 
So you see what's happening here. In the midst of this dialogue, God is offering him not an immediate fix, not a quick fix. It actually may be seeming slow in coming, but it needs to be written down so that you wouldn't forget and others would actually have access to it down the line. Which I think leads us back to our situation. In our seasons of waiting, it's really helpful for us to read and write. Because as you wait, may the fuel in your waiting be what has been written. And and I mean that in a couple different levels. First of all, I mean that in terms of the scriptures. I'm waiting for God. God, answer my prayer. God, if you would just speak to me. God, if you would just have a word for me. Have you read the Bible? No, I'm waiting for God to speak to me. I want an answer from God. What a gift we have been given. What a gift we've been given in the word of God. That in our times of waiting, in our times of confusion, I, I, I picture Habakkuk as thrashing around, trying to make sense of God. We've been given some things that have been written. This book, 66 books written by dozens of people over hundreds of years, various countries and cultures, all telling one unified story of a great God and his plan of redemption. We've been given the beginning of the story, we've been given the end of the story, and we've been given many of the pieces all the way through. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these things took place as examples for us to read and to learn. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the scriptures, God has offered his precious promises to those who believe. He's given us his word. He's given us his truth. He's given us this picture of his character and his plan of redemption. I just want to commend to you again, remind you again of the gift of what has been written to help us in our times of silence. May you have the visual reminder again on the back window of the word of God lifted high above us that speaks to us and reminds us when we're like, I'm not quite sure what God is up to. So I would commend to you to read and write, but also not just the scriptures. I also commend to you in your season, in your journey with God, when God speaks whether it's through the written word, when God speaks, when he's given you maybe a prophetic word, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, maybe it's a word of encouragement from a friend, maybe it's a a piece, you're like, man, that came from God. Write it down. Write it down. I started the, the, the habit of journaling when I was in middle school. So I have about like 35, almost 40 years of writing, cataloging my journey with Jesus. It's funny to read the, the entries of a middle school Paul, the things that were on the heart of a high school Paul, a college Paul, 
a young married Paul. But I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to read those things. I'm like, oh, I completely forgot about that. And in some ways, picking up the breadcrumbs of where God has been faithful, where God has spoken, where he has come through, where he has delivered on his timing. I'm like, I forgot about that. I needed to hear that. I I encourage us, part of our taking the tower is reading and writing. I tell you, we're a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people to the words of God, to the promises of God to the already accomplished work of God when we're waiting for the not yet accomplished work of God in our life. I would commend some of you need to go home and you've got some of these places already written down. Go back and look. Go back and read. So in seasons of waiting, take the tower, read and write, practice patience. Verse 3. God tells him explicitly, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And I know how that may sound. Like here, in your season of waiting, wait. You're like, that's not helpful. I want to frame this maybe a little bit differently. I'm not just saying, hey, be patient. I'm encouraging you to practice patience. And I love this, I love this from Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. He says that patience is a deliberate act of humility. I don't think of patience that way. Patience is a deliberate act of humility. Because patience is not just willpower and determination. It's actually a deliberate series of actions of humility. Because when you wait and you wait well, not just like, uh, frumpy, (laughs) pouty, but like when you wait well in terms of your attitude and your actions, it's an activity of self-denial when you admit that you actually don't know everything. And patience is an active admission that you're not omniscient. Patience is an action of declaring, I don't know everything. Because underneath our impatience is the assumption that we actually know everything. It's the assertion that I know what I want, I know what I need, and I know when I need it, which is now. I know what I want, I know what I need, and I know when I need it now. And so to practice patience is a countercultural declaration of I am not God. I do not know actually all that I need and I do not actually know when I actually need it. Again, Keller, he says when you're just freaking out because this has to happen, that means that you think you know. And the freaking out is coming from your certainty that you know. <laughs> I hate that it's true. Because <laughs> it reveals and exposes just how much I think of my life that I know. When I don't. And my impatience is demanding that which I think I know. That you know and that you demand to have what you know. 
And so this invitation in this season of waiting that maybe my impatience is actually a reflection of my arrogance. And, and, and the seasons of waiting that God has given us are actually spiritual workouts, God-given spiritual workouts where we get to practice being not God. Today I'm going to try to practice the skill of saying, God, I'm not you and I do not know and I will choose to trust you. So my patience becomes an act of humble worship to the one who is God, to the one who is in fact God. And it makes me realize how much worship I've wasted in my season of waiting. Which leads to the last movement, which is live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That verse is crazy. That verse is quoted a few times in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans. It's used in Galatians. It becomes this theme throughout the New Testament that the just shall live by faith. That verse grabbed Martin Luther's heart and was a massive part of his journey of faith. The just shall live by faith. God's already starting to talk about the Babylonians here, and we're going to get more into that next week. But this theme, the just shall live by faith. In a way, it's God saying to Habakkuk, hey, Habakkuk, welcome to the life of faith. Again, Habakkuk is thrashing. (laughs) I'm waiting. I'm impatient. How long? Oh, God. Why that? Oh God, the just shall live by faith. That, that righteousness and faith go hand in hand, that life and faith go hand in hand, that actually waiting and faith go hand in hand. The Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That faith has everything to do with what we don't see. That faith has to do with what we trust. With levels of uncertainty that we're uncomfortable with. Several years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and he dropped this phrase in the midst of our lunch, and I wrote it down, which is why I still remember it. (laughs) Application of number two. But he used this phrase. The phrase was gracious uncertainty. He said he came across it when he was reading his My Utmost for His Highest from Oswald Chambers. Gracious uncertainty. I'm like, that sounds weird. What's gracious uncertainty? So I looked it up. I tracked down Oswald. Here's an extended quote from him. He says, Our natural inclination is to be so precise trying always to forecast accurately what will happen next, that we look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. We think that we must reach some predetermined goal, but that's not the nature of the spiritual life. The nature of the spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God 
means that we are uncertain in all our ways, not knowing what tomorrow may bring. And this is generally expressed with a sigh of sadness, like, oh no, that's Mike, that's me, that's not Oswald. (laughs) Oh no, sigh of sadness. But it should be an expression of breathless expectation. We are uncertain of the next step. Ah, but we are certain of God. And as soon as we abandon ourselves to God and do the task he has placed closest to us, he begins to fill our life with surprises. And the spiritual life is the life of a child. We are not uncertain of God, just uncertain of what he's going to do next. So good. Like Oswald for the win. Nice job, Oswald. It's the life of faith. So many uncertainties, so many gracious uncertainties. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, but we know the one who holds it in his hand. So we are certain, we are certain of God because we've, we've, we've come to know him. He has been revealed in scripture. He has been revealed in full in the God-man Jesus. We know what he is like. We are not uncertain of that. And yet most everything else, like I'm not sure. I don't know what tomorrow may bring. I'm not sure of this afternoon. But rather than being like, oh, I don't know, it's like, what, what is it? In this season of waiting, I'm waiting, taking the tower, expecting for my God who I know what he's like. I know who he is. I know how he operates. What may he bring? Like a child, childlike faith. What may he bring? What may he be up to? So I'm going to wait today, not with resignation or fear or uncertainty that makes me cower back and be afraid, but rather lean forward in my chair. I'm like, I wonder what God may do today because I'm certain of him. But there's so many other gracious uncertainties that I hold with an open hand that he may not do it the way I want to. And that actually may be good. That actually may be better than what I had in store. That's not how we operate. We, we want it. We want it in our grasp. We want it in our hands. We want to touch it, hear it. Ah, the invitation is to trust in the one. Trust in the one who is so certain that we can bear all the other uncertainties. This is the Christmas season, right? The just shall live by faith. That's what led Mary to say to the angel when when the angel comes and says, yeah, you're going to give birth to God's son. Crazy, crazy story. Some uncertainties maybe there? And she says, let it be according to your word. She becomes the mother of Jesus. It's the Christmas story. It's what led... Joseph to stay with Mary when all the other voices in the neighborhood are like, nah, she, have you heard her story? She says that she's going to be pregnant with God's son. Joseph, get away from her. Joseph stays with her. The just shall live by faith. That's what prompted Simeon and Anna in the temple who waited and waited and waited. They had been promised that their very eyes would see the Messiah, and they waited and waited, and they saw what God had promised them, the just shall live by faith. It's what led the wise men to follow a star. 
The just shall live by faith. And so in these times, we do become more certain of that which is certain, and that's God, but to be okay with so many gracious uncertainties and lean into the adventure that it brings. Take the tower. Read and write. Practice humility and patience. Live by faith. And to those who say, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm bad at that. I get impatient. I just want to remind you that we may not be faithful in our waiting, but God is still faithful in his coming. Amen. Praise God. That's what we celebrate at Advent is that humanity has done a lousy job waiting for the time and plans of God to unfold, and we try and enact it in our own way, and yet God is still faithful. And he still comes. Actually, Jesus, in his perfection, is the embodiment of perfect waiting. Jesus has perfect patience. He is the eternal one waited for the fullness of time to be born. And then he came. And while on earth... He told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for us, that where he is, we may be also. And now he waits. It's been 2,000 years, and he waits for the day to be with his bride. He waited to be born. He waited to start his ministry. He waited on the cross. He waited in the tomb. And with complete patience, he waits for the day of the full realization of his victory over Satan, sin, and death. The one who does have true omniscience and all power is still waiting for the right time. Consider Jesus in your waiting. He's waited on you in the past. He continues to wait on his return. And he has grace upon grace to meet us in our season now. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Son of God, Messiah King, Lord of heaven and earth. We wait for you to come. As Revelation says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We await your return again to put this world back together again in full. But we look back and we see who you are. We see your character. We see your ways. We see who you are and what you're like, and it draws us back to you. So God, I pray for the many people, the many stories, the many versions of waiting in this room today. Help us, Lord. That we want that Isaiah kind of waiting, the one that actually renews our strength, the one where we can mount up with wings like eagles, the one where we can run and not grow weary, that kind of waiting. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.